want to see you. <laughs> I know to actually see. So for the sake of our listeners, Zencaster has now a new feature where we can actually see each other. So hopefully this means we won't talk over each other as much because it's definitely <laughs> difficult otherwise when we have no idea what the other person is doing or if our connection is falling out or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you're a patron, thank you so much because your money is helping to go towards the, the cost yep. of that, among other things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being patient with us. We are the PH Divas, a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. And I'm Dr. Zain Yao, representing humanities. And I am Dr. Liz Wayne, representing amino engineering, science, engineering, engineering. It changes. (laughs) Do you ever feel like um, the more you get into your work, Sometimes the more interdisciplinary you become and the harder it is to figure out or really to say with one word what it is that you do. Mm-hmm. I'd say also the flip side, though, is like I have a really dumbed down version of what I do when I don't want to talk about my work. <laughs> OK, wait, wait, wait. What's your dumbed down version? Well, not exactly dumbed down, but sometimes I, I'm like, I'm not sure what people's politics are. So it's just like I work on American literature. Like Herman Melville, and I'll just like leave it like that. Like, like one time at Cornell, and you just list the white man. Is that what you do? Exactly, that's what I do. Even though like I only work on one white man, but like I just don't. You know, you don't quite trust people. Like I remember one time I was t- um, at Cornell, I was talking to one of the the trustees, and I just gave the blandest version possible. Or like when I'm crossing the border into conferences into the states, and they're like, "What do you work mm-hmm. on?" I was like, "I work on American literature," and they sometimes ask like, "Oh, so like what?" And I'm like, "Puritans." <laughs> Like, I'm not going to mention your race say, and sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's like of all the white people to, like, be your help to get through something, Herman Melville is the one? Yeah. And it's like, he's sort of... <laughs> Like, little do they know he's, like, possibly one of the coolest white people at the time because he does so much stuff on race and colonialism. But, like, it's just, you know, it's just like, oh, yes, the giant whale. This will let me get through. It's innocuous. <laughs> Like, just ignore the fact that the whole chapter in Moby Dick about the whiteness of the whale and how terrible whiteness is. <laughs> That's great. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, not the, the, the terribleness of the whale, but yeah. Yeah, what is my dumbed-down version? I think I have a... <clears throat> I was just thinking there are multiple reasons I have a dumbed-down version, but I think... To be parallel with you, the the version that I give when I'm unsure of how people feel about me uh-huh. is one not to mention that I have a PhD, uh-huh. um, or to just say I study science, or I actually go. I mean, and I thought I'm not lying. I study cancer, but I feel like cancer is kind of um, really universal for people uh-huh. because of the experiences they may have personally had or family members have had. But I try when I'm traveling, and if at all possible, I don't really lead with like where I've gone to school and where and what I what degrees I have. And now as a faculty member, it's sort of like I'm a I'm a researcher. I study these things, and I don't really say about anything about the capacity that I do it in because I'm not always sure. I want to make it to my destination. <laughs> yeah, because so. I remember like that white guy who's chauffeuring you to the. To the airport. Or um, our get-out experience. Yes. For, for our <laughs> listeners, we had um, one of our fantastic long-time listeners, Professor Michelle Tong, bring us both out to speak at her co- college at the time. And then Liz had this whole... We had quite a few experiences, but Liz had this terrible experience of the guy that was driving her back to the airport, basically 
I don't even know how to describe it, like doing the, you know, why did you get this job thing as a black woman kind of thing? And like, I didn't get the job I wanted because I'm a white man. And it turned out like it's because he's completely underqualified and just thought he really deserved it. Yeah, well, I and to, let's just be legally fair. I do not know why he did not get the job. These are these are presumptions of other things in this very long ride. But suffice to say, I really just wanted to not talk about those things at all. And so I, I try to. I have over time learned what tend to be trigger words for people mm. um, to either um, that might make them feel uncomfortable about my existence, and a lot of that comes from being um black and having degrees and like a certain amount of like professional status that either makes them feel like they have to go into um you must be so proud oh my gosh it's such an accomplishment for you wow where'd you come from was it it was really poor wasn't it right so if you don't (laughs) really poor and really black wow that's amazing um, so that's one side of it while they're processing all of this, like, oh my God, what did I do with my life versus the, the other side of what would I do with my life, which is like the, I, what, how, what, what, what part of America allows me to drive around a black woman? Um, which I would have thought I was, you would think I was making this up, but that's, I think there's literature and there's certainly information behind this. So anyway, so that's kind of what these is. I don't actually try to announce who I am. And it's interesting because. I think it also goes can be related to the sense of um um there are times where people think that I am, am being modest. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's there's like the you sh- don't be modest. Tell them who you are. Believe in yourself. Stand up for yourself. Like where's this imposter syndrome coming from? And it's like uh, uh this isn't imposter syndrome. This is like experiential learning survival. Of, of survival. Um and I am doing this for a reason, and a, I've chosen the situation, the location, the time, because I'm like, I do not want to go down here. This is not what I want on my Wikipedia page. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm joking about the Wikipedia page. But it, but anyway, introductions are interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, I guess the the people telling you not to be modest, it sort of reminds me of some of the discussions I'm seeing right now about that new horror anthology, Them. Yeah. Yeah, because obviously it's been quite contentious and I haven't watched it myself, so I can't really weigh in on it. But I remember like the, what, that some people were talking about this one particular scene where I guess the, the whole premise is about um, white people being horribly racist in the suburbs to a black family. And basically that um, the mother slaps the, the racist um, neighbor across the face at one point and then pulls off. And like so many people, uh, black people posting on social media being like, okay, this is like the, the white idea of yay, the clap back. But like any actual black person would know that you can't, you don't have the luxury of having that sort of, mm-hmm. you know, performance of, of defiance because you don't know what the consequences will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what they are. They can be long term. They can be short term as in it was fine then, but then don't go to sleep. <laughs> right? yeah. Like we, that's, that's your cue to leave town. Right. Um, I haven't watched them. I think it's on Amazon and I recently decided to cancel my Amazon prime subscription. Um, do it and just do in large part to like the, the union, um, challenges. I think, uh, they, the, uh, Amazon employees of Alabama tried to unionize and that didn't work, but also just hearing some stories about the workers and the strife. And I was like, Oh my God, like, 
I don't want to use their service anymore. I think, let me just get my fat butt up and go to the store. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I've so been we'll shifting see. a lot of my purchasing to, to eBay and to a lot of other sites. Mm-hmm. Like it, it does make it, it's like a little bit less convenient, but I feel like that's a small price to pay, so to speak. Right. Because either way, I, all these other options are still convenient. Okay. You know, like it's, oh no, I had to type 30 more seconds, you know, into, she's, oh, you can see now. I don't have to explain that Zion is giving these fake tears. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Are we going to actually release the video with this? Maybe oh, just that's to true. subscribers. Oh, that's true. Now you get to we see could. how we look. Crap, I should have put more makeup on. Oh, I was, I thought that's where you were, were going. That's, yeah. Yeah, but maybe this is for the subscribers. Yeah. But um, today... What we really, really wanted to talk about besides uh, how we introduce ourselves and when we choose to introduce ourselves in different spaces um, are um, we should talk about uh, rejection because Uh it's April (laughs) and uh, we wanted to do like a 2.0 of our graduate school conversation about rejection <laughs> yeah springtime renewal and rejection which i think has been one of the most popular ones and because i think it just resonates time mm-hmm. and time again because it's it is literally seasonal it's the one thing i do well and consistently <laughs> um, yeah and i guess like one thing i'd preface it is like i think the the uncv has become sort of popular in the past number of years because people are trying to make more space for talking about rejection but also we have to sort of acknowledge the privilege of the people who tend to share like, oh, I got rejected X number of times are often those who are able to be successful enough that like talking about mm-hmm. failures are able to offset it. Right? That's true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah. It, and I think I would fit in this category um, on a lot of levels. Same. So just to acknowledge that I, I can talk about the failures or, um, even the fails I can talk about, <clears throat> there's been enough distance between them or there's been enough like anonymity of the failures that it's safe to talk about the failure. Uh-huh. Um, like, uh, yeah, maybe we, we, we can dig into that. But, I, you know, the same way that you don't always talk about your successes because, you know, you have to figure out what the situation is in like the graceful time period. I think failure also works the same way. Um, yeah. And I also think that there's also the added aspect as well with so much of academia, like especially like, um, early career academia being on social media and like the performances that is sort of expected around us to either talk about our successes or our failures. And of course, like it's more the successes than the failures, but I think that there's also like a growing dialogue around having space for that as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm also, this is a sort of an unformed thought, but I've been sort of thinking about the way that like the sort of need to be entrepreneurial as junior academics because mm-hmm. academia so precarious has also meant us becoming kind of like minor influencers in our own way in order to yeah. get some sort of yeah. credibility, but also it's like a very neoliberal approach as well. And it doesn't necessarily Absolutely. translate to security as I've seen for like a lot of friends of mine who are still <clears throat> contingent teachers or otherwise are losing their jobs and yeah, sorry. This is a little bit of derailing, but no, I think it's part of the important context of talking, being able to talk it, about success or failure. No, this is that is such an important point, and I, I think about the the role of Twitter and um, this idea of branding. Like, I think as a grad student, I kind of been looking at my professors and my you know, and my field, and 
branding is such a huge part of like their lab, how they structure things, but how they get grants, um, you know, guidance I got as a junior faculty, and I'm still a junior faculty, but the guidance I get is about, you know, having slides when you get presentations that just kind of overview show who you are. People have to know who you are. Uh-huh. And you need that visibility so that when someone sees your grant, they know who you are at least, and you have a better shot of being perceived well, uh, or the the benefit of the doubt that this is gonna she's gonna be able, he or she will make and me will make this work. Um, but yeah, it's been really really interesting and. It doesn't always work out the way people think it does. And I think in cases that you're mentioning where, you know, we kind of even tell people like build your brand and, yeah. and help, and this will help you. And it helps some people. So when it helps some people and it doesn't, but then I think also stage of career matters um, and like the backing and then who values that. And so I think largely, I still think there's a divide between people who, really build their brand as, but have no positions of power or no state, how about no, not positions of power, but no stable job. And they're trying to build their brand to get access to stability tend to not be linked into like the hierarchical structure of how academia works. Yeah. Yeah. And whereas people who are LinkedIn tend to use social media or branding less because they don't need it because you know, Jim, John, Michael, Susan, Karen are going to, you know, like hand them off to a good mentor, a good, they're going to help them protect them through the system. Um, so I find these get protected less. Yeah. And I guess it's noteworthy to me is like, it's no, like faculty of color, faculty women of color, faculty, like, even though they do, when they do get the security, like they clearly have to do it. They have to continue doing it to in a way that like their other colleague, their white colleagues don't because they know they're not going to be fully supported by their institution or they they've already experienced they're not going to do it, so they have to be able to hustle for themselves still. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like there's that side, but also I think about the way for like junior people, like like one way of of getting attention attention in the necessary ways is talking about our vulnerabilities. But there's also this weird sort of thing about people having to like sharing their pain out of necessity, but then it people becoming mm. very voyeuristic about it. I was thinking about yeah. like um, a friend of ours who we had a couple times on the podcast on um, Danielle Morgan and mm-hmm. this terrible thing happened to her and her brother. Maybe we'll talk more about it at some point. Cause I want to get her on the podcast to talk about her new book, which is really awesome. Laughing to keep from dying. Mm-hmm. But like I, sh- I saw her tweet like a couple weeks ago that she's, it was so notable for her when she tweets about like tragedy or pain as, as a black faculty member, like it gets so much more uptake than when she like, you know, tweets about normal things or like being happy yeah. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, sorry, I was just reflecting on like, what can I say and what can I not say? Because, um, we could always edit. It's okay. Um, I was thinking about how my colleagues respond to me off Twitter about what I say on Twitter. Uh, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. It, it gets interesting. I Usually I just let it go and I just let it kind of ride, so to speak, just to to not really critique it or stop it. Because I, my, my main question is, am I saying something that I need to let go? 
So it does have a benefit for me. And is it causing me harm to do so? And if it's not causing me harm, then that's kind of my cue to like live another day uh-huh. on Twitter. But yeah, I do think the politics of this are just so, so interesting and in how you get perceived. And again, it doesn't actually directly correlate into, into success or stability. And then I think there's always this backlash, whether it happens fast or slow, where's the acute or chronic effects of um, having notability without having that in structural, the old boys network buy-in, uh-huh. old women's network buy-in that can make you be viewed as like someone who's not genuinely a real academic. Yeah. Even though <laughs> you're doing, you're so you actually are doing all the work. You're, you're also just participating in a different platform of information dissemination. Yeah. Or I think of, I guess also being another aspect of it, like, like minoritized academics who tweet about the research, but also about their experiences. And then they'll get more called to do diversity stuff than to talk about the research. Like, you know, Chad has talked about that, but also, um, what's the name of your friend who does all the Wikipedia articles on you know, oh, scientists? Do, uh, Dr. Jess Wade. Yeah. Oh yes. Jess Wade. Yeah. Like I remember her like t- tweeting a while ago, like she's called upon to do so much diversity work and none of it is paid, but like rarely do people talk about her work in physics. <laughs> like, Right. Right. It's, it's hard. And I think it makes the rejection feel even worse because then, you know, let's say that they maybe feel like a, a divide between what it feels like your worth is for other people um, both people like who are peer level, people who are coming up the pipeline, who are looking up to you, people who are senior faculty are like, yeah, you're doing this well. And then you, you know, you get hit with the, the comments. <laughs> and I don't really know how like much grant writing you have to do or um, what your what your review process looks like. But I'm assuming that we all get scathing comments <laughs> or like we get these like, whoa, these like. Rejection can hurt. And I, and I've definitely noticed, um, I don't know, this platform now that academia or correction, now that Twitter has become a academic platform, right? It's not all academic, but it's certainly like the academics are on there now. Uh And it's not just fringe (sighs) academics. It's all of them. Um, so it really is this opportunity to kind of, um, have people speak out. And I actually do feel like I speak a little bit less. And it's, it's not that I, I speak less because there are colleagues of who may not understand or, and there are students who may not understand. Uh. Right. And I think like as a faculty, you certainly still have challenges and you certainly still have things that are hard to deal with, but because it could mean you're talking about people who can give you tenor or people who are students who are more precarious, even though you're also precarious, like that's not the right space for that. Yeah. So I feel like my concerns, I, I push them into other spaces where I feel like contextually they'll be understood mm-hmm. and they will be like maintained mm-hmm. as in like oh, someone will check me, you know, someone will give me perspective or someone will just let me have my moment will I go back out and do the job that I I chose to do, which is be a professor. Um, 
Yeah. Maybe it'd be helpful if I could share some of my recent experiences of rejection. Please. I was going to say, we should talk about rejection. <laughs> I know. We've sort of been dancing around it, but like talking about rejection is, is hard. We are good so, dancers. Like, <laughs> uh, um, so uh, at the beginning of COVID, like this time last year is when I uh, applied for a grant because the British Academy, which is like, you know, one of the most prestigious humanities funding bodies in the UK, put out a special call for COVID-19 related research as I'm sure like so many different research bodies did. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I wanted to put together a project thinking about specifically like anti-Asian, anti-Chinese racism in the UK and the West and its relation to COVID. Um, And through my work on like 19th century literature, because one of the writers I work on, Sui Sin Far, who's sort of the first Asian North American woman writer, she really talks about in relation to Canada and um, the US, but she was born in the UK and spent her childhood in England. And yet she doesn't really like get perceived as an English writer. And I thought that'd be a really interesting way of like navigating, thinking about about Chineseness going across so many different different colonial settler colonial contexts. And I put so much work in because I wasn't sure if I was going to do it, but like in those ridiculous days, the early days of of lockdown, I was like, I have nothing else to do. So I just like <laughs> yeah. spent like every single day, mm-hmm. um, you know, all day doing all this research, trying to do all get all these resources when like they're you know, as everyone knows who's been trying to do research, so so hard to find the articles, the books. I was trying to find all these different sources. Is that when you were going to the library and you could only get in for like an hour at a time? Not not even that. Like I couldn't oh. even get that. So it's like I was going through catalogs and I was trying to go through like different like secret groups that would like share PDFs and things like that. Um <laughs> But yeah, and I I didn't get it in the end. Um, and I think they said like they were just overwhelmed with the call. Like I think it had like six percent or less like uh chant like percentage of people who got it because they were just overwhelmed. And I was like I kind of expected it. It was good that I had the experience of putting it together, but also it gave me a sense of purpose for a while. But I guess the thing that sort of bothers me is like I haven't checked to see who else got the grant because I'm oh I'd be very upset if no project thinking about COVID and race or anti-blackness, anti-Asian-ness got funded. Cause that would make me very upset. Like that's, mm. yeah. Mm. And there's a whole problem in the UK about faculty of color, specifically black faculty getting funded around COVID that there's this big thing where one of the other big funding bodies, UKRI also had a COVID um, thing. And I think it's supposed to be about racial disparities in COVID and um, none of yeah, it didn't go to um, any black academics, um, even though like there's huge, <laughs> also like a huge number of, of of applications. Somehow, I think they only gave out six and two of them had the same guy on it, who is also on the Whoa. review board for the grant, who has also tweeted publicly thinking that, that there, there are no racial inequalities in health care. OK, that's. I'm speechless. <laughs> I know, I know. And so this work is, I have to give credit to Addie Adelaide, who's been doing all this stuff on Twitter. And then she um, brought together a whole bunch of other uh, black women academics to write, write this like letter, drawing attention to this. And also how like UKRI has like not given any funding to any black PIs for the past couple of years whatsoever. And it's just, yeah, it's just like the rejection. It feels personal. It is personal. It's also very structural in many cases. So yeah. yeah. And it's fun. It's interesting because right now you're, there's like a, a personal rejection. Like you got that your grant personally was rejected and feeling that. And then there's like this communal rejection where it's like, wait, but no one else 
in this category or are they're also getting rejected and it kind of leads to this sense of feeling like will I ever get accepted will I ever get my work accepted because you're not just saying no to me you're saying no to everything that I write about and study um and and I think that kind of goes to like these ideas of why it matters so much that institutions really do diversify because because they wonder eventually why they won't get any candidates or any applicants or applications. And it's like, well, you're showing us that you're not there. And what you're talking about, I, I've seen this happen for like foundational grants. Like I'm thinking about in the U.S. context, but um, places that say everyone's welcome to apply, but then they only have people from Harvard, Stanford. Or you know, like I, I just, uh, I think there have also been some kind of call outs on Twitter when like, uh, here's our new panel of people, of our new fellows. And they're like crickets and they're like, you know, like, okay, why does it, but how, how does it, how are you saying these are the national leaders and there's like school lack of diversity and schools lack of diversity and like gender, um, f- ethnicity, race, all these other things. Um, so I think this becomes very very important. There's also this huge push at NIH, um, National Institute of Health, to expand or to actually fully finally tackle the fact that there is a racial disparity in funding. Um, And I can tell you that it makes me feel really uh, weird, uncomfortable, like uh, demoralized and optimistic like it's a bad ice cream flavor. It's a bad <laughs> ice cream flavor. It's like all your, you know, you had a sundae and then it all melted. So you can't even just like push aside the cherry that you don't like. Cause now it's just in there and the cherry is kind of, yeah. So, so there's this idea of like, before I even apply for grants, I can go online and I can see people commenting sure, and retweeting. translate into which language? And t- it's my <laughs> phone. My phone thinks that I'm speaking a different language, apparently. That's hilarious. <laughs> Thank you, Siri, for your commentary. Like, I, I, what, what sort of, that is some like te- technological, I don't know, racism right there. <laughs> <laughs> Let us fix that for you. You didn't sound happy enough. Um, <laughs> but um, it makes me feel like, like going from like, oh, I've got a fair shot to like, oh, I've never had a shot. And then there's also this kind of meta feeling of like, um, now if I get a grant, are people going to think it's because they're just trying to make black people happier? Yeah. Or did I actually win the grant? Now at the end of the day, doesn't money is money and it helps you get more money. Right. But there's just this like idea that, you know, people will be thinking about that. Uh Uh-huh. And it feels like again a hyper invis- hyper visibility while still also feeling very invisible. And so I think like this communal or meta sense of rejection is just as important as like the sense of like my personal grant didn't get funded. Uh-huh. And like, and I think even the question of having to wonder why is really challenging. Like talking to people and and you know you in your mind are going like, hmm, did, did X, Y, and Z have things to do with this? Because you can't not rule it out. And then talking to colleagues and they're like, no, that could never happen. And I'm like, 
okay, all right. But did you read these papers? And you just push the papers over to them. Did you read these things? Mm-hmm. Have you heard? Have you ever? Have you actually spoken to these colleagues with like very, very tangible, like real examples? And so, yeah, that really hurts. Um, another type of rejection that I've been experiencing, and I, and I think um, this is also like as a faculty member, is like. Um, reject application like student rejections so like I have to recruit students into my lab okay um and I just failed this year like everybody was like you're a nice person and if niceness were the thing you would totally win but I found a school that's a better fit um that's kind of like the general and you know like I think um the perspective in this would be as a junior faculty, it is just very challenging to find students um, to compete with for students against um, bigger labs, more established, more funding, all these other things slash a junior faculty. In my mind, I'm still developing my pitch and my lab is like so much of being junior. It's just like, you're building your craft, but you're only halfway there. Like it takes time to like fully assemble. What's that transformer thing? And they put the little cars together and oh, get the head. Um, and the I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Imagine I'm one yeah. of those things, right? And you're building your little subunits, and so you know, like you build them up time by time, and then let's like, I mean, COVID. But so there's things that I can like kind of rationalize slash like I understand this because how it works, but it doesn't, it still hurts when like you, you go through this every year as a faculty, I'm told, I'll go this every year where I'm recruiting students and um, they all say no, or sometimes they don't all say no, right? Some of them all say yes, or it's just really interesting. Um, And then- yeah. Could you explain to me as a as a humanities person, like so these are undergrads and PhDs because you need them to help you with your projects kind of thing? Like what um can you ex- sort of explain <laughs> for us? Like what are you recruiting them for? Why is it particularly important? Like cause then you won't have anyone in your lab? Like is <laughs> Oh yeah. I mean okay. this is this is that part about grad school and training where we have to have people in lab doing research. Uh-huh. So if I win a grant, which I did, right, to study, um, well, last year, to study um, monocytes and COVID from diabetic patients, you got to have somebody who knows how to do that or wants to do that. Uh-huh. Or if you want to, like, get preliminary data to then be able to write a grant, you got to have someone who can do that. And so literally not having students means that you can't grow. You have to spend money to get money. Oh. And so you, you like, a, and I think this also goes into the branding thing. Like, so once you have the job, you're branding yourself, you're advertising yourself because you need faculty to be able to know who you are for grants, for publications, for reviewers. You need people to know who you are so they can recommend their upcoming students to say, oh, you should check out this person's lab. Um, and so they're also be more likely to go to your lab 
And then you need these people to then be able to produce um, and to train, to train them. Um, And um, so that takes people. Um, So so you put a lot of effort into it. And it is interesting. I do hear, I, I get perspective from faculty on this. And so some days you, you like some, some years you get more students than you expected. Like you, there's a strategy where you might say, if I want three students this year, I need to accept five because you have to expect that some of them are going to reject you. Uh-huh. And then sometimes it's like, Oh, they all rejected. Okay. <laughs> and then sometimes like, huh, they all came. Well, this is going to be a problem because that's half a million dollars that I need to raise now. Uh-huh. Every in addition to what I, all the others I currently had every single year. Uh, oh yeah. No, the, the lab, I, yes, I need to, it, that is not uncommon that people would need to raise half, ha, raise like half a million, a million dollars a year to support their students. So this is what people do not think about when as a kid, you're like, I want to be a scientist when I grow up. Well, yeah. I mean, but this is also how to be a pr- professor who's a yeah. scientist. If you were a scientist, you don't, you don't have, to, if you were like a industry scientist, you don't have to raise money to fund yourself and your students. Uh, but as a faculty, you do. Um, but ultimately it's like a self-propelling, you know, you gotta, you have to have the students so that you can get the data and the resources and the ideas, foster collaborations. So it's all a part of it. And so it can be easy to feel like when one thing doesn't work out, the other thing is not coming along. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's teaching, at least on the application rejection, it's teaching me to be thicker skin, to be more gracious, as in um, gracious to keep it moving. You have to keep going no matter what, because the other way to think about this is that there are people who said no, but there are also people who said yes. Um, like I, as other, I'm a joint faculty. I have students from other departments that I could have joined my lab and there are possibilities that I can come with them. It made me appreciate my current students even more because they said yes. And they said yes, happily and willingly. Right. And they kind of like see the vision and the goal and, they always have people say that your first students like really shape your lab. And, and that's definitely true. And um, yeah, it's just important to kind of not get invested in that kind of way. Oh, it's hard. And it, yeah, I think that what's also painful is as you were talking about, this is like, yeah, the feeling that if success builds on success, the worry that failure begets failure Right. Cause like, every, yeah. mm-hmm. like there's a sort of thing like the stakes always feel can feel really, really high. And I have to say that like when I was applying for my grant stuff, it like, I, it, nothing particular was riding on it. Like this, like the stakes were actually fairly low for me. So it didn't hurt in the same way. Cause it didn't mean that I was going to get less money. It didn't mean that particular students were not going to be funded or anything like that. Like least that was something I didn't have to worry about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas in for scientists, um, yeah, you, you worry about that a lot. Somebody's not going to get something. You're either not going to pay yourself or you're not going to pay. You're going to have to let a student. Something's going to have to happen somewhere. 
Um, and it's not going to be a comfortable conversation. Um, and I guess that's the thing with April and March is particularly like that's when all the rejections tend to roll in for jobs and grants. And I'm thinking of so many people who, for whom like the grant is, is like maybe their only chance at employment next year because their contract's going to be up, you mm -hmm. know, or something like that. Right. And then it's just like getting the stream of like rejection emails is like punching someone when they're down. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's going to be pretty brutal. And then the preparation against rejection and what that does to you. So because you need to get grants, you write more grants. Mm -hmm. So like if your hit rate is 10%, you just write 10 times more grants. Like one of them has to work, right? And, <sighs> and so you're just writing, submitting things like once a month, more than once a month, every, every call you see and that, that you think might fit, you're writing, writing, writing. And I think um, that changes then like your interactions or the time you have with students, with classes. Um, and in my mind, as I'm seeing it, kind of gives students an unrealistic expectation. I don't think they understand those things. And so they're kind of like, oh, where's my advisor? And it's like, well, she's writing right now. <laughs> she's trying to feed you. <laughs> <laughs> my God. Gotta bring the bacon. Bring the bacon for the oatmeal. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm being hyperbolic a bit. But I think that... And also kind of not, because like you're literally paying your students. Like, yeah, so, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's it, it's a lot. And so then grant rejections, they hurt because they cause anxiety about your future. And it feels like a, a checkpoint. So in the same way that getting students to say yes feels great because it's like, yes, something's working. Like people like my ideas. Rejection feels like, oh, my God, are my ideas not good enough? Or are other people out there? They have better ideas than me. Are they executing better than me? Am I a failure? Um, and then the grants, oh my God, they're saying no, like, um, you know, what's going to happen? Like, is this actually going to work out? Um, it's, I've also had to, this will probably, I, I was going to say have to, but I think it's going to be a practice for me that I have to learn how to decouple um, failure from like me as a human being. Like, mm. in other words, this is a failure. Even if it were five failures in a run, in a row, they're still each a failure. And it doesn't actually mean that my ideas aren't good, that I'm not good at my job. Uh -huh. And I think that's really hard to not take personally, even though you know that as an academic, your job is just mostly failure. Yeah. And I think the, the flip side of that is the problem is like when you are successful, it does validate you as an as a professional and as a person like that's and we get buoyed up by like, oh, yes, this means our work matters. But then the flip side of like, if you're going to be invested to that extent to get that validate affirmation and validation from the success, then the corollary is that the failure hurts in those exact same ways. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. And it makes me think of how like when I was much earlier on, like at, in Canada, they have uh, national grants for master's and PhD programs. and one way that I decided if I was going to go into academia or not was because I applied for these grants with my research projects. And I was like, I don't know if I want to go into academia. Everyone says it's really precarious. If I get this grant, then I'll take this as a sign. Yeah. And so I like sort of yeah. outsourced it as external validation. I was like, okay, someone thinks I'm good, good enough. So I can know I can continue because I know I don't want to take on the financial burden, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it was a smart way of doing it, but then also it has set up the, the system of expectation for myself of validation and 
yeah, it, like it's both a good thing, but at the same time, the good part of it is also the bad part. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you're so new at it, it feels like it all matters. Uh-huh. And I and I say that because I've seen senior faculty kind of just brush it off more easily. And I think they're just actually used to it. Um, yeah. So that's kind of like my cue. But it takes so long, I think, to get to that brush it off point. Um, because it, and it just takes so, so much so long. And, and I would also argue that a lot of the associations I was making, if you'd ask me maybe like a couple of months ago, I would, I w- if you ask me out of context, I will tell you, of course, a failure doesn't mean that I am a failure. Right. But then if you ask me how I felt about the grant result, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's sort of like that rational person is out the window and then it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> what am I going to do? Who's going to hire me? Am I good for anything else besides being a, being an academic? Who wants me? Does anyone want me? Please, someone take me now. Just well, you know, someone like say they want me. <laughs> yes. Academically speaking. <laughs> Just, just, just to clarify that, um, certain listeners I don't in particular think might need to be told to tune in for this. But <laughs> <laughs> and it's, doesn't it suck that we're just supposed to get used to the idea of the failure all the time? Yeah, I don't like it, especially because I think uh, as academics, we're we're used to a certain number of failures, but also like we continue because we succeeded a lot of times, and yet the further more we succeed, the more we have to get ready for more and more failure as we go along, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Um, it's yeah. We're, we are doing this of our own volition and yet, yeah, this is the system we're in. Right. And then the other thing is you're always supposed to learn something from failure. You know, it's sort of like you're not, I won't say you're not allowed because you can. It just may not be the most helpful response. Like the adult mature response to failure would be to take a step back, have your pity party moment, sing all by myself, drink some wine, whatever it is for you that does that thing. Maybe just invest in more skincare products, like something has to glow. And, um, but then you look back at it and then you look at the reviews or you look at the things and you think, well, how can I make my grant writing better? How can I, am I conveying the right ideas? How do I fix my pipeline to writing grants? Like you have uh-huh. to, you genuinely have to circum to like, look at your work. And the thing I find really challenging about that is that one, the idea that you have to look back at your results or your grants inherently in some way means that you're admitting that something about it may have made you fail. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that depending on like your mindset, that can be tough. Um, or also if it genuinely is something that's above me, it's above me now, right? Like you're not funding anybody who's doing all these things. Then, then your retrospective like approach to like, well, what, how can I make my grant better? Isn't as helpful. And you're really just like blaming yourself. Right. For something that's mm-hmm. out of your control. But the reality is, as a faculty or as a, any professional, you have to push through and you do have to like work on your product, your quality, your 
your production, your research output. I'm trying to figure out a way to say that doesn't sound so like neoliberal, I guess, but like your product, but your, your writing, your, your science, what do you need? What are people getting funded and how do you need it? And I guess for the scientific aspects of that, there are some great ways of thinking about how to increase that. And sometimes it's also just increase your number Hmm. or um, talking to more people as in like normalize your experience. Like Uh I have found it helpful to hear of other people who I'm like, you failed, but you're so good. And they're like, yeah, I, I still fail now or all these other things. But I think it's just, that's really hard for me. Like, emotionally to swallow because I just want to go like, Oh, burn the whole place down. Not, not actually. I'm not going to, I don't know how to make fires. I like candles. That's about it. But (laughs) you know, like, you know what I mean? Like you kind of want to just like, Oh, everyone's against me. (laughs) Um, But it doesn't help you to, to really like feel that, to lean into that. I think for long. Or it could be maybe fun of on one, one hand, it's like you're continuing to hone your craft, but then it's also like the push for these bodies to change at the same time and realizing that these these efforts are are yeah, are in concert with each other. Yeah. Failure just sucks. And it sucks that you don't even have time to grieve. Cause you gotta keep moving. Mm-hmm. You have to keep working and talking and revising improving or submit that grant to another institution submit it to another foundation um so like learning the game of how to write grants effectively or how to write fellowship applications um there's so much that i have learned just by like having people share their applications and i've just had these whole like i didn't know you could do that yeah. kind of moments of like you can you what grantsmanship is interesting i had no idea Oh, that's the other wild thing of my life now. Like, it never occurred to me because as a scientist, I'm always hearing about million-dollar grants. But I remembered last semester when I submitted a grant, and it was for $1.7 or something like that. And I remember thinking, like, holy dramatic effect. Uh, did I just ask the government to give me $1.7 million? And I was just like, yeah, they should give me $1.7 million. And I was like, and I just, but really I thought about like how scientific academic me who's been in like all these great places are like, this is nothing. And I thought about like, it didn't click until I mentioned it to my family that it was like, oh, that's a lot of money. You know what I mean? Like, it's just this, like, the, the the convergence of different experiences and just this feeling of, like, what does that even mean? Yeah. And I guess, like, what's confusing also, I think, for, for non-academics is when they hear about the big grants, they, like, they sort of just see it as translating either directly into, I don't know, either people's salaries <laughs> or into, like, fancy equipment. No. But actually, it's, like, barely trying to tread water. Because that's what it sounds like. Because it's, like, it's, like... I just won 1.7 in a lottery versus I won, you know, and it's like, I won a $1.7 million grant, which was like a lottery that I had to bust my ass for, but it's not like I get to benefit. Like I won the lottery. <laughs> like Also it covers two student salaries and t- tuition and sti- sorry, student student stipend tuition, maybe two a year. Um, some equipment, 
I think maybe a postdoc for a couple of years. And then indirect costs, like we got to pay for rent and electricity and building upkeep. They, they, they charge us for these kinds of things and administrative assistance and all the other things that kind of fit into that gray box of the university takes this money and like funds all the other, other parts of the university. So I think I may get one month of salary because I, I, um, I only get paid nine months of the year. And so you write grants to get paid the other three months. So, so yeah, I, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Like that's where this is going. Um, there's no boat involved, unfortunately, but you know, still the, it, but it's huge for my program and. Um, uh, I feel like there's so much more to say, but I also have to have a meeting. Yeah, I have to head off to work. I also, man, we don't have as much time as we used to when we were grad students. I know this is like the bittersweet thing. It's like only as you move away from being a grad student do you realize that when when people are further along in the profession, like, oh, I never had so much time to do anything, and we're like, what time? And now you're like, oh yes, there was time. Mm-hmm. Like there was time to think, look at the ceiling. I think of the number of hours I spent looking at the ceiling. And, and mind you, that was depression, but I at least got to look at the ceiling and think about my work before I did it, you know? And now I'm like, you have things to write or people will not be happy with you. I know. And still the depression is there. (laughs) 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 But that's a conversation (laughs) for another time. (laughs) So yay for a rejection. We're with you. You can do it. I mean, you can, you can, you can. Persevere. I, persevere. I was going to say, maybe I shouldn't say you can do rejections, but because who wants to do that? But you will persevere. Yeah. And hopefully hearing this has been helpful in some way, whether you've been successful or, uh, and even if you're successful, everyone's going to face rejection sometime. Know that you're not alone. If you think we're really cool, know that we are cool <laughs> and also have been rejected. So it doesn't mean you can't be cool too. Oh no. <laughs> I think I've been rejected 10 special. times this year. Yeah. Oh God. I think so. And I mean, these are grant applications, not including like the other forms of rejection that can happen as a person. Oh, wait, I think I was completely wrong. Like this, never mind. Like the, the thing I thought I was ha- as, at three, not two. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm clearly Which time zone are you in? <laughs> I know. It's well, actually, so, so we're actually going to end because Zai and I have not spoken in a very long time. So we need to catch up on like... Uh, juicy girls. stuff that we juicy. cannot share with you. The juicy, juicy <laughs> things. Um, <laughs> not safe for podcasts. That should be a thing. Like, not safe for work, not safe for podcast. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, this has been the PC This Podcast. I am Dr. Liz Wayne. Dr. Zainiel. <laughs> and you can get us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, subscribe, and check out our Patreon. I love it. Bye, guys. And gals and intersex. All of you. You can you're non-binary folk. Yes. Yep. <laughs>